0: because of the current confusion, we've been taking some time getting the context for the Sixth Commandment. We started by considering the amazing fact that God could have continued making man just like he made the first one. From scratch, a little bit of slime and breathing him life. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, God decided to share some of his creative power. And so he blessed man and woman and made them the joint guardians of this incredible holy power. The power of cooperating with him in bringing forth new immortal beings, babies. Now precisely because of this power of bringing forth new immortal beings, little babies, precisely because it's so incredible, it's so important, it's so holy, God gave man another power a special virtue meant to protect and defend that creative power, and that protective power is called holy purity. It gives men the ability to remain chaste in thought, word, and deed. And then, in order to protect holy purity, God gave man another power called modesty, which is a moral virtue that guards purity by giving man the ability to practice due measure in his actions and in his dress. We can get a faint glimpse of how important the great creative power is in the eyes of God when we think about that. That here he gives man creative power, then he surrounds it with the virtue of holy purity, and then he surrounds that with holy modesty. Now, not only did he do that, but then he wrapped all that up inside the boundaries of a very blessed and holy state in life. A state of life so blessed that in the case of a baptized man or woman, he's raised it to the level of a sacrament, and that's holy marriage, holy matrimony. Okay, today let's take a quick look at that state, the state of marriage. But before we do that, let's keep a firm principle, our first principle firmly in mind. Marriage is a creature. God created it. He created it. And he makes the rules. And because it's a creature made by God, its essential nature can't be changed. As the great Pope Pius XI stated in his encyclical on Christian marriage, quote, let it be repeated as an immutable and inviolable fundamental doctrine that marriage was not instituted by man, but by God. The laws made to strengthen and confirm and elevated were not made by man, but by God. Therefore, these laws cannot be subject to any human decrees or to any contrary agreement, even of the spouses themselves. This is the doctrine of Holy Scripture. This is the constant tradition of the universal church. This is the psalm definition of the sacred council of Trent. Close quote, Pope Pius XI. Marriage and the laws of marriage cannot be subject to any human decrees or to any contrary agreement, even of the spouses themselves. Unfortunately, this may be a newsflash for some of the legal geniuses out East. The obvious question is, then, what is marriage? For the sake of time, we'll follow Frank sheet quite closely here. Marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. It's a contract that results in a relationship. A man and a woman are free to marry or to not marry. But if they make the agreement to marry, then God attaches certain consequences to their act. To this particular free choice of a man and a woman, God has attached the consequence that a real relationship comes into being. They have stated their will to be man and wife. God takes them at their word and makes them so. The man and the woman make the agreement to marry, God makes the marriage. Their husband and wife by their own consent, but by his act, all right? They're now related to each other closer than a brother to a sister or a father to his son, in a relationship made directly by the Almighty God. As our Lord stated, they are no longer two, but one flesh. God alone can bring a marriage into being. God alone lays down the conditions by which it can cease to be. Once the relationship exists, the party can't alter the conditions. Nor can the state, nor can the church. Now it's also important to realize that once the relationship has come into being, the contract has done its work. It produced the relationship of marriage, and the parties are now governed in their common life, Not by the contract which they made, but by the relationship which God made in ratification of their contract. So much for Frank Sheep. So we've seen that the marriage is a contract that results in relationship. If a man and a woman freely make this contract, then God makes the relationship. They consented to be a man and wife, and God made them so. Okay. Now, given all that, let's spend some time then looking at both a marriage contract and the relationship that results from that contract. Now, we'll limit ourselves to speaking about marriage at the natural level. In other words, what we're saying are true for all marriages. Whether or not they're baptized has nothing to do with what we're going to speak right here. That has to do with grace, but not about these principles. Okay, first, what's the marriage contract? The contract which a man and woman make, the contract which they both consent to, in order to enter into the relationship of marriage is very clear. Here's a traditional description of the marriage contract. A man and a woman give and accept exclusive and perpetual rights for acts which are of themselves are suitable for the generation of children. A man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. If it's properly made, validly made, the contract results in the relationship known as marriage. Let's take a moment to consider this contract. Both the man and the woman agree to the contract. That's why weddings work the way they do. You have two witnesses on the contract. We usually call them the best man and the maid of honor. The priest, in the case of a Catholic wedding, is there on behalf of the church. And with respect to this aspect, he's making darn sure the contract is properly entered into, okay? So what happens? In flowery poetic terms, he asks the groom if he freely agrees to this contract. Answer, I do. Then, since both parties are in on this deal, it's a contract, he turns and again in flowery poetic terms asks the bride if she freely agrees to this contract. Answer, I do. And what are they agreeing to? Marital rights. Marital rights, which means they give and accept rights to acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. In other words, they have just been given not only God's permission, but his actual blessing to use that great creative power. They may use that power on the condition that the acts are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. On the condition that the rights are exclusive That means that the partner yields those rights exclusively to the other partner. That shows the unity of this relationship. And on the condition that each partner yields those rights perpetually, that shows the indissolubility of that relationship. Okay, quick review. We asked, what's a marriage contract? We saw that it meant a man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which of themselves are suitable for a generation of children. That's the marriage contract. We've seen that if it's properly or validly made, this contract between a man and a woman, it results in a relationship which is made by God, and that relationship we call marriage. It's important to note that if the couple did not make a valid contract, then the relationship did not come into being. In other words, they weren't actually married. Well, our so-called legal system might call it a marriage, but calling something a marriage doesn't make it a marriage in the eyes of God marriage is what it is and if a couple contracts for some other sort of relationship say well let's just try this for three to five years and we'll see how it turns out or we're not open to the acts which of themselves are suitable for the generation of children they might call that a marriage but it isn't a marriage is what it is God created it these days folks call a lot of crazy things marriage that aren't now we see what the marriage contract is. We need to consider what's the purpose of the relationship that results. In other words, what's the purpose of marriage? God created marriage as a lifelong union of a man and a woman for two purposes. A primary purpose, a secondary purpose. The primary purpose of marriage is the procreation education of those little immortal beings we call children. Procreation and education of children is the primary purpose of marriage. That's God-given. Secondary purpose of marriage consists in two things. Mutual help and a remedy. Let's take a quick look at each of those. First, mutual help and comfort. God intends that a man and a wife help each other. Not simply in household chores, but by mutual love and care for each other and cooperation in training the children. Second, the remedy. Since the fall, marriage has also been a remedy for concupiscence. This means that one of the purposes of marriage is the legitimate quieting of the passions. That has to be understood correctly. It actually implies much more than simply calming down the passions. Why? Because the legitimate quieting of the passions within the boundaries of marriage is not simply concerned with the passions it's also meant to both express the love between and the union of and intensify the union of the two personalities of the man and the wife ok so God created marriage with two specific purposes the primary purpose which is the procreation and education of children secondary purpose which is the mutual help and comfort of the spouse and remedy for concupiscence these two purposes primary and secondary are both legitimate Acts between spouses are good to the degree that they conform to these two purposes of marriage. The general principle here is, everything in conformity with these two purposes, the primary and the secondary purpose of marriage, is good and permissible. Anything opposed to them is evil and forbidden. Anything in conformity with the primary and secondary is good and permissible. Anything opposed is evil and forbidden. Okay, now after considering the marriage contract and the primary and secondary purpose of marriage, it's easy to understand the concept of the marital duty or the marital debt. As we've seen, by entering into a marriage, each spouse has received rights. Rights. That means that the other spouse has a corresponding duty to honor those rights. That's one of the consequences of saying, I do. It is a serious duty, owed in strict justice to the spouse. It's also important to keep in mind what we've seen. This right is not a right simply to the quieting of passions, but also the right to an expression of love and the unity between the two persons. If it's not that, the debt is not being properly paid. Furthermore, to refuse to pay the debt without very serious reasons, I'll list those in a moment, To refuse to pay the debt without very serious reasons is a mortal sin against justice, since it's a violation of the rights of the other partner, and it's also a mortal sin against charity, because frustrating one's closest neighbor can place that spouse in potentially serious danger of a fall. Refusal without serious reasons is a mortal sin against justice and a mortal sin against charity. It's not in conformity with either the primary or the secondary purposes of marriage. Okay, the marital duty may be refused for the following serious reasons: When one party requesting has committed adultery and has not yet been forgiven by the other. When one requesting is not in the right mind, for example, drunk. When there's a real danger of causing miscarriage, there's grave danger of injuring the other, for example, with a deadly disease, for up to six weeks after birth. Other questions should be referred to the confessional. But I should make a note, not just any confessional. In delicate matters such as these, please make absolutely sure you consult a knowledgeable confessor. It's not a secret there's a massive amount of confusion and error in these sort of matters. During another rough time in church history, St. Charles Borromeo, in the Catechism of the Trent, published by the Order of St. Pius X, warned the faithful about the choice of a confessor. Quote, "...see the great care that each one should take in selecting as a confessor a priest who is recommended by integrity of life, by learning and prudence, who is deeply impressed with the awful weight and responsibility of the station he holds." Who understands well the punishment due to every sin and who can discern who are to be loosed and who are to be bound. Close quote, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Be careful when you're taking delicate advice. Let's review. Today we've taken a brief look at marriage. We've seen that marriage is created by God, and that he makes the rules, which means that no one, that's no one, as in not the couple, not the state, not the church, not even the Pope, and certainly not some tin horn judge from out east, can change the rules. No one. We've seen that marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. If a man and woman freely make this contract, then God makes the relationship. They consented to be man and wife. He took them at their word and made them so. We've seen that the marriage contract meant that a man and woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. We've seen that if this contract is properly made, that is to say, validly made between a man and a woman, a relationship known as marriage comes into being by an act of God. We've seen that God created marriage with two specific purposes. The primary purpose is the procreation and education of children, the secondary pur- purpose, mutual help and comfort of the spouses and legitimate quieting of the passions. We've seen these two purposes, primary and secondary, are both legitimate, which means acts between spouses are good to the degree they conform to those two purposes. We've seen the general principle is everything in conformity with these two purposes, the primary and secondary purposes, is good and permissible. Anything opposed is evil and forbidden. We've seen that each spouse has rights, which means other spouse has a corresponding duty. We've seen it's a serious duty owed injustice justice to other spouse. To refuse the debt without very serious reasons is a mortal sin against justice, and it's a mortal sin against charity. We've seen that it may be refused for very serious reasons, such as adultery or if someone's drunk. We've seen that other questions should be referred to the confessional. It's no secret there's a crisis in marriage these days. Let's end by everyone kneeling down and we'll pray Hail Mary, asking Our Lady to protect, strengthen, and foster peer and holy marriages here in our community, in our beloved but confused country, and throughout the world. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.